Luke chapter 18. Um, this week again, uh, you know, I was just kind of looking over the messages over the last year uh, from the book of Luke. And uh, I was kind of shocked at how many of these messages have had to do, especially in the last couple of months, how many of these messages have had to do with wealth and the wealthy. And you know, I discovered, did you know that um, Luke, even though you might think of Luke kind of not so different than Matthew and Mark, they're called the synoptics. Did you know that Luke talks about wealth and the wealthy four times more than Matthew or Mark? It's a, it's a subject that keeps coming up in the book. And in this particular chapter, it's going to address a man. And we're going to kind of focus on some verses that have to do with the man who is, he's called the rich young ruler because in one of the gospels, he's called rich. Another one of the gospels, he's called young. And another one, he's called a ruler. So we put it all together. And this rich young ruler, uh, is going to be compared. I mean, he says, what, what one thing? I've done everything right. I've got my life together. I don't sin. I keep the commandments I have since I was a kid. What do I need to do? And Jesus says, there's one thing that you still miss. And those verses have haunted me most of my life. I hate these verses. One thing you lack, sell everything you've got. And I wonder if, like me, you've seen those verses and said, oh, it just sends chills down your... You hate those verses because you're like, what on earth does this mean for me? One thing you lack, sell everything you've got. We're going to get to that. But I want to open up the chapter and just look at what's happening so far. He begins by addressing this crowd of people and he says specifically, and I'm going to begin in verse 9, those who are confident... In their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. And, and I know that you probably would agree with me. There are very few things that make someone more ugly than pride. Something, very few things make somebody more hideous and nauseous than arrogance. And very few things make somebody more attractive and more beautiful than humility. The problem is, and we said this a couple of weeks ago, pride is like body odor. It's not something you smell on yourself. It's something other people around you are pretty aware of, but you don't always pick up on your own arrogance and your own pride. This man in particular, I want you to notice something. He thanks God in this parable. We're going to start with this parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. It says in verse 9, "...to some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable." Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'll tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I can't imagine myself, and you probably can't either, praying a prayer that's exactly like that. Praying a prayer where I say, God... Thank you I'm not like that person. 
that horrible person, I'm a righteous person, but I have seen a similar attitude reflected in even my own prayers. Man, I'm thankful for the life that I've been given, and I am. I'm thankful for, you know, God has guarded my life from, from, from sins that I could have fallen into. I, all of these things, you can find yourself, man, why is it wrong to be thankful for this? This tax collector, his, he's called a tax collector not because of his position, understand. When he's addressing tax collectors in scripture, these are people that were wicked men. They, it wasn't simply their position, it was their sin. Many of these tax collectors were making a living off of hurting the elderly and the poor. Okay? This man is a sinner, and he recognizes himself as a sinner. But this other man fasts twice a week. Now, let's be honest here. If I had fasted twice this week, and I did not. If I had fasted twice this week, I would probably come before you, and inside I would be thinking... Pretty righteous dude up here, but I'm not going to tell you that. I fasted twice this week. I made a huge sacrifice and gave to the poor this week. I want you to know that deep inside my spirit, I'm a good person. And if you looked at my life, man, from the time I was a kid, man, I've been reading the Bible. From the time I was a kid, man, I stayed away from drugs. I stayed, I stayed away from all that junk. I gave my life to God. I decided to become a missionary. I memorized scripture. I did all of the right things. Thank you, God, that you guarded my life against that sinful life that would have led me down that path. Now I'm praying a prayer that you might be familiar with and that makes sense. And all of a sudden you you hear this and you're thinking, this man started to become confident in himself. He no longer needed God. And I've shared this example with the church before here. You may know that this particular parable, and I have to get past it to our the text I want to focus on this morning, but this particular parable personally is my absolute very favorite parable Jesus tells in all of the Gospels. There is nothing that means more to me personally than this, this Pharisee and this tax collector. The reason why is because this has been my journey in walking in the church. Somebody who, when I first really started to get engaged in coming to church, man, I fell in love with God. Psalm 63, we just sang. Psalm 63 was the scripture that brought me to Christ. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. There's nothing in this world for me. I need you. I'm desperate for you. You're my God. And when I would come to church, the songs that were boring to me when I was a kid started to become my own anthem, started to mean something to me. And when I would come to a body of Christ, I loved these people. These were the kinds of people that were amazing to me. And where I grew up, it was more than that. Where I grew up, it was popular to be a Christian. In my high school, if you wanted to be popular, you better get an FCA. That's where the football team was. That's where the cheerleader, that's where you go. That man, that Ricky Trevino, he was an amazing country singer, man. He was singing for us. Man, that's where the popular kids went anyway. So get involved with this group. And I fell in love with Christians. The last thing I would have ever done is lift my head in arrogance. Ever. Because I didn't consider myself to be worthy to be in the room with those people. Within a year, 
All of that changed. Within a year, I would be like, man, I learned a Greek word, Caruso. I'm smarter than these people. And I was introduced to a realm of Christianity that became arrogant, corrupt, and sick. We started to debate. We started to fight. We started to talk about ourselves and be told by others that we are the cream of the crop and this kind of language. We started to think like that. I was introduced to a form of church that fought constantly. And you are almost all aware of what I'm talking about. Looking down on other religious groups. Looking down on other people in your own religious group. Looking down on this because your services are not the way services should be. Your life is not the way a life should be. This is the way it should be. These are the steps. This is the pattern. This is me. I am justified because of this. You know what I'm saying? Now, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't pursue, we talked about it in class this morning, a life that honors God in every aspect. But we lost one thing. We lost one crucial thing. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus gives us this parable and he says, two people come. This morning, both of those people are present, probably within me. The one person that comes and says, man, God, church is my life now. I have the songs memorized. I know the scriptures. Man, I can stand up and talk about this stuff now. I'm not the guy that sits in the back with his hung, head hung low saying, what am I doing in a church? This is crazy. I don't even belong with these people. I'm not worthy to be here. I've got sin in my life, and I feel sick. And God says this, which one of those people is justified before me this morning? But God, I memorized the scriptures in my sermon. I fasted this week. I gave myself to you this week. I thought about it. I've done everything right. But you've lost one thing, Jeff. You've lost one thing, and there's one thing you need to do to bring yourself right before me again. So he tells this parable, and, and, and I've told a lot of people this. Um, and I am going to go ahead and just tell you kind of a, just a few years ago when this really, uh, really hit home with me. Um, I never change sermons last minute. I am not the kind of person that says, well, this is the sermon I studied, but I got here and I threw it away and I did something else. I've never done that in my life. But one Sunday a few years ago, I did. And it was at a church um, somewhere else that I was at, and I was asked to do a, a Sunday morning talk. And just before my Sunday morning talk, someone confided in me and said, this church is hurting. We're sick. We're divided. There's pain. People hate each other. There's all kinds of junk going on and we're fighting. And I was sitting there and I had everything prepared and I was just devastated because it was personal to me. It's exactly my own journey. A journey from desperate for this God that I want to love, that I want to serve, to becoming arrogant and fighting about people. And it's always about something that, if you're an outsider, makes no sense at all how that issue could possibly divide people. And so I got up and I shared this parable. And I spoke to that church passionately and I said, this is my life. I went from being the tax collector to becoming the Pharisee overnight. And I have spent the rest of my life trying to become the tax collector again. 
I have spent my life trying to get back down on my knees. And the most beautiful thing happened afterwards. A lady that's a matriarch in that church, very you know, influential lady, part of the history. Her dad was influential in building that church. She came in tears. And she said, I needed to hear that message from God so bad, and I can't tell you why. And she walked away. And the church needs to hear this parable today. This parable hits home with a lot of us. But now he's going to turn and address a different situation. But before he does, he's going to stop and he's going to grab a child. Well, a child is going to come before him. These are the verses. Verse 15. People were bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So he starts out by saying to this righteous person that fasts twice a week and gives a tenth of all he's got, listen, you need to be like this tax collector. Now he's going to say, listen, you need to be like this child. So we need to be thinking, what do these things have in common? What does this tax collector have in common with this child? And then finally, the text I want to get into you, uh, into with you this morning, beginning in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to keep in mind that the book of Luke is addressing somebody who is also called this archon, a, a ruler. A rich young ruler, if you will, is probably a lot, maybe what Theophilus would have been. And so this might be personal to his text. And he says this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Uh, this verse, <laughs> it was very difficult for me because I wanted to just focus on this verse and not focus on what's ahead. But for now, let me just say with Jesus' response, Jesus does not say that he's not good. Jesus does not say that he's not God. He's making a point out of what this man is asserting about him. If you believe my words are from God, then honor them as such. I believe is kind of the point there. He goes on and he says this, You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Um, when he heard this, he became very sad uh, because he was a man of great wealth. And so the question that I want to bring before you when we're looking at this text, and we're about to talk about camels and needles, but when we look at this text, what is the one thing that this man lacks? Now, if you are looking at this text the way I have looked at this text most of my life, the one thing that the man lacks is um, giving everything he's got to the poor. If you sell everything you have and give to the poor, then you can be my disciple. And so this one thing that he lacks is doing that. Well, that creates a problem for all of us. 
Um, because throughout the book of Luke, this subject has come up of giving everything. In fact, the disciples are about to say in response to this parable, we've done that. We gave everything up and we've come to follow you. And the problem with that approach to this, that, this verse is it's exactly the opposite of what the verse, I believe, is intending to convey. And that is, it's the idea. Now, I wouldn't say that we shouldn't be giving with our, our possessions and all of that. But I do not believe that the one thing that is missing is that he has not given his possessions. I believe that he needs to give his possessions to the poor to arrive at the one thing that he's missing. The one thing that this man is missing is dependence on God. The one thing this man is is missing is desperation. And because he's become a self-made man, because he's there, because he's made, he has, he has no need for God anymore. The one thing is he is missing is not giving all his possessions to the poor because as 1 Corinthians 13 says, you can do that and still be missing the one thing. And so the one thing that this man is missing, I'm going to suggest to you is desperation on God. We're going to talk about that here when we get to the camel. So he says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now that verse is key. It is impossible with men. It's not possible. So what people have done with this parable, and I bet you've heard this, is preachers went on tours over to Israel and to Jerusalem. And the tour guides to make money came up with this idea that there's this gate. And this gate is called the eye of the needle. And if you would take all of the baggage off the camel, make it get on its knees, it could go through the gate. How many of you have heard that? Okay, about half of you have heard that. It's not true. The gate never existed. That's the first problem with that, is there is no such thing as that gate. There's gates that have come up in the time that maybe they've called, called the eye of the needle, but there was no gate like that. It doesn't make sense at all. But here's the biggest problem with that application of this parable. It says this, it's possible. You can give enough. You can get on your knees enough. But it's possible for you through your works to get in. And that is why that is not what he is saying. In fact, there was, an, there was a Persian saying at the time that we know was very similar. It's impossible for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. It was a saying that was already around. In fact, the word is, is uh, it's crazy. It's that it's the same as this word, uh, camelos and camilos. Um, again, with the Spanish accent on my Greek. Um, <laughs> the, this idea of the camelos and the camilos, the, these two things um, have the same word. And so it would be this idea that you couldn't thread a rope. Through and, and some commentators, by the way, have said probably it should be uh, a rope through the eye of a needle rather than a camel, and it was a mistranslation. The problem with that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke would all have to be mistranslated, and it, it's probably not there. But I think the play on words is deliberate, that it was probably already an idea that you can't get a rope through the eye of a needle. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. The funny thing is, if you begin with the tail, you can start. But it's not going to happen. It's impossible. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, the reason that is important to look at it that way is 
you were supposed to hear what he just said and say, okay, well, if a, if a camel loses its baggage, it gets on its knees, it can get in. Maybe I can give enough. Maybe I can, And that is going to leave everybody in this room walking away from this parable the way I've walked away from this parable all of my life. God, I will never become a Christian. I will never be worthy. I will never be good enough. I will never be there because I am not going to do this. I can't do this. And God says this, exactly. With man, what did he already say? With man, this is impossible. You cannot measure up. No matter what you've done in this life, there was nothing you can do that measure up. And so every parable he told here, whether you're talking about the child in verses 15 through 17, the tax collector in verses 9 through 14, or the camel in 18 through 17, each one of these instances, the situation is desperate. You need God. You need Him. You know the song, I Need Thee Every Hour? You know what I love about that song? Do you know that that song was written not in somebody's time of despair? It was not written in her time of desperation. It wasn't written in a time where she was like, oh my God, my life's falling apart, I need you. She said this about this song, I can't remember the author's name, but she said this about the song. I wrote that when my life was full of blessing and joy. And in that instance, I realized even now, I desperately need you. And then she said, after I wrote the song, my life fell apart and those words sustained me. But she recognized it when her life was full of wealth and blessing. God gave this warning to Israel when they entered the land. How about this? This is Deuteronomy 8. I'll just begin reading in verse 12. When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You'll say to yourself, my power, the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. He says in Hosea 13, 6, how about this verse? When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Jesus said this in John 15. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, you will produce fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This entire chapter has one message that's especially true. Especially true for those of you who have your life together. You've You've got yourself, make your retirement is in place. You're living a righteous life. You don't cuss. You don't steal. You've kept your marriage strong. Your kids are out ruling nations. You're doing great. It's especially for you. Because if there comes a point in my life or your life or the body of this church where we are not desperately dependent on God, 
we are in the most dangerous place possible. And we have turned away from God and said, thank you for doing this for me. I'm on my own now. I remember when I was just out of high school. Well, I was just my senior year. My parents gave me a T-Bird. I loved my car. It was a white T-Bird, and I thought I was everything. I had a solid job at Mr. Gaddy's Cutting Pizza. I was doing good for myself. I was feeling sustained. I feel like, man, I've got all of this. Mom, Dad, give me the keys. I'll see you later. Then when I said I was going to do mission work, my dad came to me one day and he said, hey, I got some money for you to, to go to the mission field since that's what you want to do. I said, man, Dad, you're the best. He said, yeah, I sold the car. I said, well, you sold my car? And my dad said, what? No, I sold my car. I forgot something. Everything that I had that made me such a big stud, none of it belonged to me. I didn't do anything. I was a very, very poor ramen-eating kid. And I needed to remember that. And that's what happens in our life with God. He has done so much to bring us this far. And I praise God for it. We need to raise Ebenezer's. We need to see what he's done. But guys, we are every breath. This next breath I breathe came from him. I was dependent on him for it. And in the society where we are trained to puff out our chests, to wear, do you know when I, I, I went on preaching interviews? I won't say who said this to me. But you know a preacher came to me one time and he, he actually, this is a true story. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, son, you need to wear a power suit when you go to interview. Show who you are. A preacher said that to me. And I was like, yikes, man, that's scary. Um, is that really what we're doing? To show who we are? To boast in our accomplishments and our degrees? Um, a man that some of you might know, he was actually the original director of, of Sunset. His name was Klein Payton. And he told this beautiful story, an incredible story, about what his dream was and what he wanted to do for God. And it's a true story. It's not a parable. He says this. He was walking with his brother Gerald and some other friends, and they were in a, a big orchard. And there were trees that were beautiful, and they were amazing. And it was just a beautiful place. And there was one tree that was ugly and beat down. And he walked and he got closer and he saw that the reason it was ugly and beat down and all the branches were broken is because it was so full of fruit that all the branches were on the ground. And he said, that's what I want my life to be. I don't want my life to be about exalting me. I want my life to be so full of fruit that I don't even look like anything anymore. And that my fruit isn't there to impress people. My fruit is there to bring glory to God. Um, I want to close in a prayer for us as a body. Um, and for you, maybe us as individuals as well. I think the one thing that divides families and divides churches and divides people is almost always pride. Arrogance. And losing that spirit that God, thank you for today. 
Thank you for giving me the name Christian. Thank you for calling me to be with people like this. Help me to walk today in humility. Help me to not, man, let me just go back to the tax collector. Never once did that tax collector say, my God, I'm a broken man. I need healing. I'm desperate for you. I can't even lift up my eyes to you. I'm not worthy to you. Thank God that you put this humble spirit in me so I'm not like that arrogant man. (laughs) Did you notice he doesn't say that? He actually thinks that arrogant man probably is better than he is. He doesn't think arrogant thoughts. He doesn't think bad that he just keeps himself right here and says, my God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The beautiful thing about all of this is this. If you came here today and you think, I'm a sinner, I'm a sick man, I've got so much junk in my life, I shouldn't even sing a song to God. You are desperate for him. And if you came here today and your life is together and you have fasted twice this week and you've given a tenth and you are in a beautiful, solid place, you are just as desperate for God. Absolutely just as desperate for God. Uh, Father, I want to come before you and I want to ask that you would remind us who we are. You would remind us that... um, that uh, we are desperate for your grace. And the one thing, if we're missing one thing, it's the absolute desperate need to stay near you, to recognize that every breath that you sustain it. Father, that we come to you full of sin and we're desperate for the blood of Christ. I pray, God, that you would not allow the enemy to blind our eyes to our own arrogance but you would keep us humble before your throne. I pray that this world would recognize us by our love. The the world would recognize us by our absolute dependence on you and that we would never appear to one another or before this world as arrogant. Um, I pray, Father, that you would put the heart of Christ in us. Put the heart of this child in us. Put the heart of this tax collector in us. And help us to recognize that, Father, with us, this is impossible. But with you, it's all possible. I'll praise you for your love. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.